What's up everyone and welcome to episode 129 of the Justin Insight podcast, a show where we talk to people involved in the world of alternative music and find out what makes them tick. I uh, hope everyone is well, hope everyone had a lovely week. Uh, I feel like I start this off in the same way every single week, but I just generally want to send my well wishes to everyone. Um, my week has been fruitful and stressful all in the same breath, uh, but I'm still surviving. Uh actually kind of have a lot on in the next couple of days so I'm actually recording this intro on a Saturday night Um, I usually do it on a Monday ready for the show to go out Tuesday morning but because of by the time you've been listening to this uh, I would have gone and seen Touche Amore in Bristol and Lingering Nota in London on consecutive days Um, so a lot of travelling around means no time to record and edit so getting this all done before that so I can still get this episode to your ears on a Tuesday which is today if you're listening to it on the day of release um, but yeah so got those coming up uh, also went to Brighton a uh, week just gone to see uh, Permission and Imposter at the Cowley Club which I fucking love and it was a really really fun show um, I really needed a fun show after having an absolute shit week at uh, my day job so yeah that was really cool um took some rad photos so if you want to go check those out on instagram it's at tim burtbeck photos little plug there um yeah uh oh one final thing (coughs) oh excuse me (coughs) sorry guys um yeah my band the divorcee we've finally finished off our record uh so it's now in the mix mixing mastering stage so when that's all done and dusted if the guys in my band let me might share a track on here for everyone's here as well because I know I've been babbling on about that for a while and some of you may be intrigued or I just want to kind of put it out there either way we'll see what happens but yeah had I had fun doing that and I'm looking forward to to hearing the final product 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 yeah there we go words left me then for some reason um also just want to say a massive thank you for all the amazing feedback regarding last week's episode with michael burden from uh uniform uh it was amazing to to hear people enjoying the episode sharing the episode which is honestly honestly means the world to me um if you do like what you're hearing on this show i know i say it a lot but please subscribe give us a like maybe even leave us a little review on whatever platform you are listening to this podcast on it really really does mean a lot to me and yeah keeps keeps this show going in in some aspects um right enough about me enough babbling right 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 i don't know what's going on with my talking tonight anyway let's get into this week's uh show proper um and we have another exclusive track for you this whole kind of segment seems to be going pretty well so far so Again, if you want a track featured on, on the show, get in touch. Uh, just underscore and underscore insight at hotmail.co.uk. Uh, email address will be in the description. Um, but this week we have a track from uh, Kent Heavy Hitters Harrowed. Uh, the track is from their upcoming record, Chaotic Nonsity. Um, and the track is called Postmodern Prison.
So that was Postmodern Prison uh, from Harrowed. As mentioned, uh, the track is off their upcoming record Chaotic Nonsity, which is released on October 18th. Uh, it will be released via uh, Feast of Tentacles and Superfy Records. So yeah, go check that out. Um, as always, relevant links will be in the description of this episode. Um, now for something completely different, on to my guest. Uh, and this week my guest has shared the stage with some of the biggest names in post-rock um, I'm honoured to be joined by uh, cellist Joe Quayle uh, during the chat we discuss how uh, playing with Caspian kind of opened her up to the world of post-rock her background in classical music and how that sort of transitioned into sort of the, the loop music that she does today um, and how motherhood, motherhead? motherhood uh, has kind of changed the way she approaches things specifically touring um and yeah just a, so much more it was a delight to talk to joe so please sit back enjoy my chat with joe quail and i'll see you on the other side Uh, joining me this week on the Justin Insight podcast is uh, composer and cellist Joe Quayle. Joe, thank you very much for taking some time out of your your busy day to to join me. How's everything in your world? How how are you? Oh, thank you. Well, thank you for chatting with me. I'm fine, thank you. Um, yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's busy at the moment. Um, it's middle of the school holidays, so it's been a bit fraught, but uh, <laughs> yeah. everything is, is good fun. So, well, um, as I've mentioned before, I kind of went into recording. The show's called Just an Insight. I always yeah. like to take my guests back to their origins and roots, so to say. Um, but you're kind of a little bit of a, a different twist because I'm used to having punk and hardcore bands on this show, but you, you've got a bit of a different lineage. So how did you kind of get into to music? Where was your kind of birthing point, so to say? Well, I started um, playing the piano when I was very little. Um, my mum... Uh, would teach me, you know, basic uh, sort of, you know, middle C and stuff like that. And then um, when I was in the second year of primary school, uh, there was a big project run by uh, the Inner London Education Authority um, for teaching uh, string instruments to all in London kids, right. which is a great privilege. And unfortunately, it's not something that happens now, um, you know, various reasons and funding and stuff. But um, that's where I began. And so I started to play the cello, um, I think when I was about probably about six I think right. five or six and I stayed with uh, this particular string program all the way through till when I was 18 um, they still run um, a centre called the Centre for Young Musicians um, which has various orchestras attached to it but they also uh, did all sorts of other things they did choir they did general musicianship um, improvisation uh, orchestral ensemble playing um, you know composition absolutely brilliant tuition um, and then I took my degree in music um, and I had stopped playing for quite a long time after my degree because I wasn't really sure uh, quite how things would fit together because I knew that I, I didn't want to be a cello player in an orchestra right. um, and I also have 
had and always had a, a big love of, of rock and metal music in my terms for that it was at the era of sort of Judas Priest and Iron Maiden uh, this type of stuff as well as a bit of hair metal and things. Yeah. so this, I'd always loved this music um, and I wasn't really sure what to do with my own music if you like so um, so I, I stopped playing and I had a career in the city and um, worked in, in recruitment and insurance and it was all very nice you know um, <laughs> yeah. and then I was asked to play uh, cello somebody said to me oh you, you play the cello don't you and I sort of reluctantly said oh gosh yes I used to you know um, and ended up playing for a lady called Rose McDowell when she was um, playing a couple of concerts just as part of her string ensemble and it kind of went from there really and it was a bit of a slow um, journey through to what I do now mm. because it was a process of I suppose not only just gaining confidence back again, but gaining um, a, a belief that it, it was uh, possible to do these things, and then and then a, a, a belief that actually it was, it was okay to do these things on your own as well, yeah. which is of course what I do now is work as a soloist the majority of the time. So, mm. um, yeah. <laughs> so in terms of kind of you said starting off very very young, but obviously being part of that kind of. Uh, string sort of school sort of thing was was the cello always something that you were you were drawn to or was it just that the opportunity arose and you kind of just happened to pick it up yeah. well you've hit the nail on the head actually. <laughs> yeah. I I, uh, I never wanted to play the cello I never wanted to play any instrument at all actually um, and uh, I began I went to the cello because uh, first of all when, when the opportunity came up and the letter came home you know would you like your child to play an instrument and I said absolutely no <laughs> and then the, the, the spot in the cello class came up during the second term and somebody had left um, relocated and there was something else happening in the school day that I didn't fancy doing so I suddenly decided that I'd like to give play the cello a go instead you know uh, and, and that was that really and, and then off I went um, to the little sort of porter cabin hut thing where the string lessons took place and um, I, I got my cello and I began to play um, and it's funny because it wasn't something I some of my colleagues have always had you know they knew from day one they wanted to be a cellist or a percussionist yeah. or a violinist or what have you and I never felt that sort of burning desire if you like but but nowadays of course I mean it's uh it is my life. Well, you know, it's that and my family, of course. But, yeah. Um, uh, there is, there is uh, nothing. That it, it's my voice. It, it, it's everything uh, to me. Uh, it's, I'm just very thankful that the circumstances stacked up in such a way that I was able to experience that. Yeah. So you you say that you kind of didn't want to to play an instrument at, at all. So I don't want to say that you were kind of forced into it, but was that kind of the case in some some aspects? <laughs> No, not at all, actually. I mean, it was always, I mean, my parents uh, are, very, they always were very encouraging. But yeah. There was never uh, an aspect of being forced into it. And I don't think they ever thought it would sort of go anywhere, if you like. <laughs> yeah. um, but it was certainly, I mean, it was a useful uh, vehicle for childcare during holidays and things, I think, because there was lots of orchestral courses and things that we used to do. Yeah. From junior all the way up to the London School Symphony Orchestra they would run courses every holiday uh, as also the school was every Saturday so I mean and now as a mother I can tell you that I would appreciate uh, that type <laughs> <Yeah>. of activity <laughs> being available as well you know um, but no it's and also a thing to bear in mind is that 
how how the string teaching was structured and, and the project in these schools, it was such a way that pretty much all of us played. So really, until the age of 18, I mean, all of my friends, we all played violin or cello, uh, and we all went to the music school. Everybody did it, you know, and it was all for free as well, which was extraordinary. So I never felt like I was missing out or not, not seeing my friends, because that's where we all were. Yeah. <laughs> so it was quite extraordinary. And you mentioned kind of the sort of uh like metal was always kind of part of something you're interested in so where did that that kind of side of things introduce into your life when did you sort of start listening to the the quote-unquote sort of alternative side of music well i don't know really i guess i mean it probably it started with my dad i mean i remember that we would come back on a friday night funny enough after orchestra um and we would come back and he would play he plays records and these were things that went really from the Kinks and the Who to Pink Floyd, um, you'd have Tony Joe White, you'd have all sorts of bits and pieces, Eagles, you know, so uh, sort of what would be loosely termed as rock, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and then I remember very clearly uh, there was an advert, this is how long ago it was, there was an advert on the television for um, a compilation album called Pure Soft Metal and the track they chose to advertise it was Wasps Forever Free. Right. And I... I loved that track. When I first heard it, I loved that track. I fell in love with it. And um, I'm still a massive Wasp fan, actually. I've seen them several times. <laughs> and um, I, So I went off, you know, trotted off, and I, I bought this, this album, and uh, on it was also a track by Queen. My dad is a huge Queen fan, so we then dug out lots of Queen records. And, uh, you know, there was other bits. I mean, it was, it was you know, soft metal, soft yeah. rock, so... Um, it wasn't anything particularly drastic but then of course at the, the, the time in school as well there were people who I mean Guns N' Roses uh, first album was, was out at that time and there was a big there was lots going on you know but quite a pivotal time musically and it was, obviously it was before the grunge scene hit as well so alongside all of that there was also the kind of you know the hedonism of the sort of Sunset Strip lots and you know Rat and, and, and you know Fast Pussycat and all this type of stuff too so it was a really good time mm. for, for, for music and um, and then I, uh, well, I just enjoyed listening to this basically. But for me, I mean, it was it, there was it wasn't so very far removed from some of the kind of heavier aspects of, of, of the more classical side of things as well, or certainly like early music and things. You know, you could start. You know, it doesn't it take much to sort of plot out sequences between uh, early music and, and and rock music and metal music to find that it's exactly the same. Really, it's yeah. just, you know, <laughs> slightly different instrumentation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then so, so you, yeah. oh sorry go on. no no that was it that was and I was going to say just so in terms of kind of when you were sort of starting off playing the cello and, and things like that I'm assuming a lot of what you were learning was the sort of classical side of things yes um, I mean very much so but this, this particular um, project and the teachers that were involved were really they were quite extraordinary so they had uh, a very very broad taste and I mean they used to have a thing called, called uh, it was an hour e each week which is a recital and they would get great um, you know classical players that would come in ensemble quartets um, they'd also get in sort of um, Irish fiddle players and they'd get in uh, African drummers and then they very memorably got some um, what was body popping at the time you know this right, time okay. got a load of d dancers coming in um, they also had a big chunk of, of, of our education was dedicated to, to what they termed general musicianship, 
what what is actually um, the early stages of composition um, and improvisation and call and response stuff. So we was always very much encouraged to, whilst obviously you know we were learning to read music and learning to perform as ensemble and these very important things, we were also learning to be confident in playing whatever that we felt like playing yeah. or writing music you know writing songs or pieces of music you know and it's when you're seven or eight you know you write a piece called the clock or something and it's just somebody's you know tick-tocking on some cowbells but it's still expression and it's encouraging you to think away from the sheet of music and this is very very important you know mm. so then in terms of kind of i guess your progression to maybe a little bit closer to where you are now mm-hmm. when you were sort of maybe sort of experimenting like with with your instrument a bit more were were you kind of finding that what you were sort of composing was leaning on the heavier side or when you first kind of started toying around was it kind of more in the classical realm of things i would say i mean i i everything everything i wrote up until when i began to write what what we would term an album if you like so pieces of music and pieces from my degree and stuff like that they would definitely fall more into what we'd term the contemporary music side right. although it's never been ear splitting um and particularly uh uh what's the word um elitist you know uh, in terms of its kind of accessibility and listenability if you like uh, it's it was still it was, it was pretty contemporary um but i suppose what what what's changed for me was when I began to work with my electric cello um, mm. which I had built for me and the only reason I had that cello made in the first place was to save the life of my acoustic cello it's a very beautiful um, old English cello um, he's about 200 years old and oh, wow. he's got to, yeah he's lovely and I, I didn't want to take him continually to, to festival sites or pubs or yeah, I, gigs I can you know. imagine so <laughs> you can imagine can't you yeah. and it's even just the, the decibels just the volume on stage I mean obviously a symphony orchestra has, has a fairly uh, powerful volume as well but when you've got volumes from subs and from things like that then obviously the vibrations are not good for the instrument yeah. so, and, and miking it up is an absolute nightmare too so uh, whatever you use is, is not going to be 100% reliable so I thought well I'll get an electric cello and then of course when I got that um, and then I began to experiment I mean this is cutting a long story short but I began to experiment with um, first of all with reverbs obviously and then with delays and then of course became the moment where I stuck an overdrive on it and then you know that was that really (laughs) off I went you know (laughs) well I've got to ask then so what what's your acoustic cello doing now then Oh well, I play a lot, uh, and I use I use my acoustic for session recording and um, anything. I do quite a lot of recording for for various composers, um, whether it's uh, soundtrack work or bits and pieces that they're working on themselves for for their own work or something. Um, so I use my chair for recording. I, I used to play more recitals um, than I do now, but that's right. largely because I don't really have the time. Um, but I, it's still something I enjoy very much, and occasionally I will be asked at um, some of the festivals that if I can play one or two of the bar suites or something like that as well so you know it's still so I play very much still this cello Uh, but they're kind of two different instruments really you know yeah um, although they're not but but you know they fulfill very different um, areas for for me musically I mean I use I use my acoustic cello when uh, every single album I've made solo album 
well, um, I've used both electric and acoustic because there are some things which just, uh, I write them to be performed on an acoustic cello and, the, the, you know, there's the sheet music available and that's the point. So I record them right, the okay. as well. So, yeah, so, so they're still there. They're both sitting happily in my music room. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> and then in terms of kind of, I, I don't know, this, this might be me making a wild assumption and a, and a sweeping statement, but... Go for it. <laughs> Because obviously, like my sort of introduction from for for yourself is kind of that more alternative post rock sort of sound. But obviously, as you said, you you've previously done recitals, done sort of stuff with orchestras, sort of kind of thing. So, do you find that that's kind of put you in a unique position that you can flip between the two? Ah, uh, it, it, it's hard for me to say really. Yes, I suppose so. Um... I mean, I am not unique by any stretch of the imagination, but I suppose within this field, there are fewer people currently who have come from the same path I have and are now doing what I'm doing now. So, I mean, this is this is one of the reasons I think that Roadburn have commissioned me to to, to write a piece of music for, for next year's festival. Um, and part of the commission was they were interested in looking at um, heaviness in classical music, yeah. which clearly, I mean, there's obviously a lot of that. Um, you know, I mean, you don't have to go much further than Mahler, but you, you, there is a lot of heaviness in classical music. But also the way that, I suppose, the, class, the classical influence on the metal and post-rock scene and vice versa because it's not a one-way street mm. and so you know this so I'm writing a piece of music um, which I can do because I've come from this background yeah. um, but, but that doesn't mean that nobody else could do it because of course they could if they wanted to but it's just that I think because because I'm known for having this uh, you know straddling the, the fence or I'm sure there's a more elegant way of putting it <laughs> <but yeah. laughs> so I'm writing a brain piece for um well, with me on electric cello, there's uh, eight trombone players, bass, trombone, piano, violin, male and female vocals, who both of whom are, are singers, but also extreme vocalists. Okay. Um, so, you know, and so that's where we're going to present this piece next year, and that largely, I think, I was commissioned because of the background that I had. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting, you know, it's exciting. <laughs> and you mentioned earlier that kind of obviously once you picked up the, the electric cello, that kind of spurred things on to, to the direction where, where you are now kind of thing. Yes. So in terms of kind of, I, I guess, kind of getting an ear and an idea of, of what you do now, especially with kind of like the looping and, as you say, like the reverb and things like that, was that compl uh, like a completely alien world for you at the beginning and you were literally just hitting pedals, pressing buttons, seeing what happens kind of thing? Still is a bit like that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I I, I had uh, very little um, introduction, uh, very very little knowledge of uh, of the possibility of effects. And even in the time I've been using uh, the effects, particularly the loop station, they've advanced uh, enormously. And I've always used Boss, but the very first pedal that I was loaned was a, a Line Six um, right. DL4, I think it was, where it had had a a whole 14 seconds of looping time on it, yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, wait. But actually, that was enough to make me realise that there was enormous possibility here. And then I moved to Boss RC20, which, which uh, had, had a longer loop time, but it was still very limited. And what's interesting is, I teach this as well, actually, when I, when I teach a composition, particularly working with looping, 
is the fact that you there are many possibilities. I used to boss RC300 now, which is a triple loop station, floor-based one. Yeah. Uh, there are myriad possibilities uh, and assignable functions within this thing. So you can actually do a hell of a lot. But what's very important to me is um, when I compose, I, well, I compose and I happen to use a loop station. So I, I, I prefer not to be defined by being a looper but on the other right. hand obviously that is what I do because I have to because I'm on my own and that's one of the ways I build my pieces but I try to uh, ha have a an integrity to how I compose so the piece of music is a piece that exists in its own right not simply that I've looped it because I can do you know what I mean yeah um, and it's the same with the effects as well I mean if if for example some of my pieces are built the, the, the riff in inverted commas is built on um, the, the, the particular delay, if I've used a ping pong delay, or, or maybe I've written an effect where there's no front end on the sound. So if I play it on the first beat of the bar, the sound that you hear is going to come at a different time, etc., etc. All these types of different effects. I'm waving my arms around here. Enough, <laughs> all these kind of uh, uh, possibilities, sonic possibilities, and sound modeling possibilities, none of them I knew about beforehand. This is one thing they didn't teach at, at the school. Mm. And it's the one thing that I became aware of as I started working with bands and with other musicians. Um, and these people, some some of whom ha had a very different sort of upbringing and training musically than I had had, but they were much more kind of wild freedom in these things as well so I, I really enjoyed this and I've never known what I'm doing when it comes to effects <laughs> I've never known the correct order in inverted commas to put an effects, you know, effects chain in and I don't care because I do I, I, I experiment and then from those experimentations um, is where a piece was, was just suddenly be born you know from yeah. one note sometimes or three notes but it's, it's a very small thing and then the piece comes, and then off I go again. <laughs> yeah. And you mentioned that, obviously, there was a period of time where you kind of stepped away from, from playing the cello. So in in that period, were, were you kind of doing anything musically, or had you kind of completely removed yourself? No, I was. I mean, I still, I've always had a piano, and so I still still would play, play the piano, and we'd have sort of Christmas carol sing-alongs it sounds very twee actually but it was usually street <laughs> yeah. but people would sort of bash carols out and play. all of us would I mean, and occasionally I'd get together and play quartets with people um, I actually played uh, synths and keyboards um, for a couple of bands uh, started off with a covers band as one often does and then went into to playing keyboards uh, with a sort of I suppose post-rock band would be well they weren't really post-rock but anyway the, the, it you know, I went, went back in that way. Um, yeah. And actually, that was interesting because I had, had still have uh, an Access Virus uh, KB, so the synth version of the virus, which is brilliant because that taught me a lot about sound modelling as well before I even got to the floor pedals. So saying I don't know anything, uh, I, well, I don't, but I have had I had a lot of experience um, modelling sounds using this analogue modelling synth, you see, so that was, that was quite important. Actually thinking about it, it was as a, as a learning curve. And then it was during that period of time that then I got asked to play cello again. So, yeah. Um, but it, it never occurred to me to, to sell my cello. I mean, never, never would I be without a cello. Even yeah, at that point, yeah. You know, so. <laughs> and then in terms of you, as you say, kind of getting asked to, to play the cello and come back, what was the kind of movement from, from there to then deciding to sort of do stuff on your own? Had you kind of 
worked with a few other bands collaborative and then sort of fell back in love with it where, where did that kind of go from yeah, it, it, it took its time. I mean, it was definitely, uh, when I first started playing again, it was definitely session work with bands. Yeah. Um, and then um, it, it, I had a band myself for a while. So we had uh, drums and, and guitars, two guitarists, bass, and I was playing cello. And things, they never sort of... That it was great. I loved this period of time. I loved working with these musicians very, very much, and I was very blessed to work with them. But I think I probably always felt—I don't know—that that, that I wanted to be able to do exactly what I wanted. To yeah. Do. Um, and at that time, I think it might be different now. But we're talking maybe this was maybe thirteen years ago, something twelve years ago. It was still. Uh, I remember doing gigs where basically I was the, the, the leader, if you like, of the band. But mm. I would be, uh, or we didn't have our own sound man, so whoever was doing front of house would be mixing the strings really, really low. And it was like a constant battle, you know, to say, no, this isn't a guitar band, this is a band fronted by cello. Yeah. You've got to look at me as though I'm the lead singer, I'm just playing a cello, you know. <laughs> and I think uh, I. I had a couple of concerts booked where, for whatever reason, we weren't able to do them as a full band. And I just thought, do you know what? I'm going to do them on my own then. And it was terribly nerve-wracking. And I only had my little tiny loop station and a very, very basic effects thing. But I thought, right, I have half an hour. <laughs> half an hour. <laughs> Imagine it. it bliss, really. Half an hour, uh, and I need to make a concert in half an hour. And so... Very, very quickly and organically, a couple of pieces were written, and it just went from there, really. And then I think initially, because I was a soloist, it, it, I was fairly easy to book. Yeah. You know? And then hopefully people then booked me not just because I was a soloist, but because they thought it was half decent as well. I mean, let's, let's <laughs> yeah. hope that was the case, you know. <laughs> and, you know, and then and then I find in the that blink of an eye, then it, so it feels, you know, but several years down the line, then I play. I don't know, to 8,000 people at Hellfest on yeah. my own. You know, so uh, it's where I feel, I think probably I'm fairly antisocial really, so I'm, I quite like being on my own. <laughs> <laughs> if I'm honest. So it suits me, you know. Yeah. So you said obviously that kind of, the first instance it was sort of quite nerve-wracking and that's kind of what I wanted to sort of ask you a little bit because I don't know, like, because it is, obviously you've got your, your loops and effects, but where is essentially just you and an instrument obviously there's no vocals and there's no bands there's no nothing in those kind of early stages especially kind of playing the brand of music that you're playing now like was it sort of a struggle to kind of get noticed in some form and maybe taken quote-unquote seriously in some aspects Probably, but I don't really recall that now. I mean, it was the early days. You see, I was I was playing um, quite a lot in the goth scene, right? And they are extremely wonderful audience for me, very very loyal. And it was because of people that I've met through sessions and through other bits and pieces, um, I was able to get a couple of concerts um, at the Treffen Festival WGT and these you know nice high profile festivals was able to get a few performances under my belt um, and again because it also in those early days what I was writing was quite different uh, the way what I thought the limit of my ability was was quite different you know so so the pieces were much more simple I and mean, still 
quite pure in their intent, but they were they were much simpler compared to what I do now. They were also probably less heavy, probably more dark. Yeah. Um, dark ambient, I suppose, is the term one uses. But now, uh, well, they're pretty dark, but there's not much as ambient about about most of them. Really. Yeah. <laughs> but I think have, having these these being privileged to have met some people who were, for whatever reason, very supportive and, and then uh, a very, very big gig, as it turned out for me, was um, performing for Dunk Festival and, and the gentleman that, that runs this festival, Guy Good Luke, he'd seen me with my band and he wrote to me several years down the line, I don't know, maybe four years later, and said, you know, we'd like you to come and play at Dunk and I said, oh, I'd love to, but... Uh, you know, I don't know if you know, but I'm a soloist now. I don't have a band. And he said, "Yes, I know you're a soloist. I've been following what you're doing. We like what you do. Come and play." So I went to play at this festival, um, and there, uh, Caspian were there. Right. And for whatever reason, Caspian came when I was sound checking. They heard me sound checking. They then came back to the gig, and then they offered me their support slot. So I was the only support for Caspian. Wow. Two tours for them. Yeah, and that was a game changer so I love these boys you know and I, I would do anything for them basically yeah. they gave me you know I have a great team of people around me now um, but that Caspian Luke at Dunk Festival and then Caspian you know the, the stars aligning so that they actually heard the first person on the first stage at, of the festival I mean you wouldn't bother with your headline and there we are you see so that's in, yeah, that's, hard that's, work and luck yeah yeah and then in terms of kind of because as I mentioned at the top of the, the show like obviously I'm more used to kind of talking to to people that are in like sort of the punk and hardcore world so when it comes to kind of writing music I kind of have a bit more of a connection with that because it's the way that I write music so yeah with with yourself like how do you approach it like in terms of creating a composition do you kind of hash out what's going to be played purely on the cello first and then introduce the loops do you play around with the effects the whole time how does it all come come together well actually i mean probably just the way you're imagining i mean exactly what you've just said there, there's there's there are many ways um, that it comes so sometimes actually it comes through doing if you like classical practice so yeah. i'm working at a passage in, in in i don't know piazza or something whatever it is and working on something over and over again, I make a mistake, and then it's like you know the, the break in the clouds sort of thing. I think, oh, I like that, yeah. you know, and then and then and then I could play this particular four or five notes. I could have them just simmering away for up to a year, even to be honest with you. Other pieces come really quickly, and they come because I've I've made an effect I like, and then suddenly a riff comes out, you know. Um, Another way I write, or how I'm writing this piece for both and the commission, because um, I wrote, I wrote a poem, and um, it's kind of a personal response to something. I wrote this poem, and I effectively made like a, a musical sigil out of it. So, I, so I, I made charts and allocated the, the letters of the alphabet to particular notes or, or um, you know, length of notes. Then got rid of vowels, got rid of certain other you know bits and pieces. Anyway, it ended up with this little theme. That, that is this poet mm. that has become the basis for the whole of that work um, so there's, there's loads of different ways I write and in terms of practically speaking I mean the loops they that especially now the way I work they, they can be there's, there's a lot of uh, reversed stuff there's stuff that comes in and 
and then out and then back in again, this kind of thing. And there's often three different time signatures running or three different loop lengths running. Um, so that can take a long time. And it's why I say to people, when I record uh, an album, that is actually just one snapshot of that piece of music and it will continue to evolve over the months and years that yeah. I play it because it becomes more and more refined in terms of the, what I'm doing looping or, or, I, or uh, you know, another way is quite often I'll write the ending of a piece first because I know how I, what, what I want the end to sound like. Yeah. And a lot of my pieces sound like set closers. It's like basically one long set closer myself. <laughs> <laughs> but I want this particular energy at the end and then it's like, okay, well, how... How how am I going to write in um, a, a artistically a way that pleases me, a way with an integrity, a compositional direction? How, but how the hell am I going to get to this massive riff? You know, mm. <laughs> that's what I want to know. It, 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 so so it's place of working backwards as well. It's, it's it's unusual that I would start at the beginning of a piece. Yeah. Basically. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then in terms of kind of I guess you being kind of introduced to to the sort of metal post rock post metal world kind of thing when i think I think nowadays it's a bit different because you're an uh, an established name people know what you do and, and things like that but in those kind of early days what was it kind of was it quite hard for people to kind of maybe grasp what you were doing because i think a lot of post rock bands they can kind of rely on as you kind of mentioned, building to the big riff and the crescendos to kind of move what their narrative is along. But with yourself, like, was it hard to maybe get across what the story was that you were trying to tell through the music? And was that quite a difficult thing at the beginning? Or did kind of people just sort of come up very open-minded? Uh, it's a good question. I mean, it's, I think, I think it's, it's, difficult, it's difficult to convey... Uh, what well, it's difficult for anybody to convey what, what they do really I suppose but yeah. I mean the advantage I had and have um, is my cello because there's very very few of them at all yeah. in, in the world let alone on this scene so people whether they remember the music if they'd seen the cello they, they clock that usually um, however when it came to you know trying to I mean for, for, I was on my own um, for years years and years um, until it was only in the last 18 months I've been working with my booking agent who's been fantastic but before that it was me getting all my gigs and yeah. it was very difficult to uh, convey accurately and to say well yeah I'm a soloist yes yes therefore I'm on my own and yes I play the cello and yes there's no vocals but it's you know it, it's heavy and I can yeah. support Amon Ra and it's fine you know people kind of get it a bit more now but I think in the early days I still think there's some there's some aspects to it, uh, which I mean, people people are, are a bit a bit iffy about about it, you know. But then usually I'm very blessed because when they see the concert, they're like uh, they're, they're enthusiastic and they're definitely kind of on board. Yeah. Um, but but definitely, I mean, if you if you just if you put it down on paper, I mean, it looks jolly odd, basically. <laughs> so, yeah. To be fair. <laughs> so I get it and even I mean the recording the albums are, are different to the live performance live performance is very very raw and very um, fiery uh, and uh, when I play I feel very 
connected to, to something or connected to my audience. I don't know. It's, it's a bit. It's a, it's a. It feels like a journey that we're all on. Yeah. Um, and I think in in the albums, um, they're recorded beautifully by by absolutely fantastic producers and engineers. Uh, but they're much kind of safer version of things if you like yeah uh, which is fine because because also because I self-release everything so my audiences they know that when they buy a record they're they're not buying the live experience but they are buying something which supports me and helps me to make the next live experience for them as well so it's a really it's a kind of like a community feeling about it somehow as well yeah that didn't answer your question sorry <laughs> no, fine. it's not one of my strong points answering accurately <laughs> That's absolutely fine. Um, and you obviously mentioned, well, brought up Caspian, but obviously, I don't know, throughout the years you've kind of become synonymous with that sort of group of bands, sort of Caspian, Mono, Boris, you've mentioned Emma and Ra, yeah. and, and the likes. So, I don't know, like, for, from an outsider, like, I just kind of lump you in with that now, but is it... <laughs> not not meaning that in a bad th- way, but like... like yeah. <laughs> But like, is it straight? Is it strange that you're in that world and kind of this recognised name with these with these bands, where it is just just you essentially? I don't know, really. I mean, it's not strange to me because it's, that's what I do. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. so, and that's I've, I've never known it any other way. I mean, it's not like I had a, you know a glittering career as, as a pop star or something, uh, and now I've suddenly you know find that I've been embraced by this scene. I tell you what, I will say though is that I think that the post post rock, post metal, general alternative scene, the audiences for these types of scenes, um, they are very, very, very open minded. Very yeah. open minded. Uh, far more, dare I say, than the equivalent classical audiences. Um, it, you know, it, it's been much easier for me to sort of plough my trade, if you like, with, with these metal fans than it has been to go to equivalent uh, venues that have classical uh, concerts, even ones that appear to be having festivals that are looking at, you know, new music or women composers. They don't touch me with the type of barge pole, so it's quite interesting, really. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, but I don't know. I mean, it's, to me, it's a privilege to be associated with, with, with these artists and... Um, yeah, I'm very happy if, 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 to use your words to get lumped in with them. It's <laughs> yeah. me fine, so <laughs> carry on, please. <laughs> and obviously, in those terms, obviously you've not just kind of played with them and supported them and toured with them, right? Obviously, you have worked with a number of them in in terms of collaborations and things like that. Yeah. So, yeah. with that that kind of aspect, is it just? I don't know. Is it kind of a bit of give and take on on your end that you want to kind of put the Joe Quayle stamp on whatever they're doing or is it more just they've got a space that they want to sort of have a strings element in it and because they know that you're familiar with their sounds that then you slot in kind of thing uh, I think it's a little bit of both you know I mean they uh, people I mean people wouldn't ask for cello on an album unless they actually wanted cello yes. you know if they, if they wanted French horn they'd ask for that instead but I think that uh, well I, I, I do know um, for, for a fact that the sessions that I've done rec- in recent years um, people have very it, you know, it's very humbling but they have booked me 
for me. So quite often I go into these sessions and, and the artist will have uh, either a very detailed plan or, or a vague plan, but nonetheless they'll have a plan of what they want in a particular song. So we'll get that down. And then they all say to me, what would you do at this point or something? And there's, there's several things which, which are now, if you like, my trademarks, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, and so we'll discuss perhaps, you know, a touch of this or a bit of that. But it's much more, I mean, it, it's in no way directing the, what they have written as their tracks and their albums. But it's just, you know, this is when it comes to the fine sculpting, if you like, and, and, and the... the, the the sanding by hand rather yeah. than the actual kind of real heavy lifting stuff so um it, so it's a, it's a, it's a two-way thing really but but i think because I, I i'm quite quick in session so whether or not there are any dots on the page doesn't matter to me you know i mean we'll, we'll get the work done quickly yeah, and, yeah. and efficiently so yeah. <laughs> you know uh, and, and of course the producers that these artists are working with um i i I have loved working with all of them, and they're very, very broad-minded producers as well. So they, they, they know that there's more than one way to play a cello, you know. So yeah. we're all on the same page at least. Yeah. Which is good. And I just want to mention, obviously, about your your live performances. Obviously, you mentioned that for you, it's a bit more kind of uh, raw and and things like that. And I think from the times that I've seen you, that definitely comes across. But the thing that I've always it's maybe just because I have no idea how the, sort of that kind of way of composing music works because I'm just used to picking up a microphone and screaming but, <laughs> but is there a lot of kind of um, improvisation within the live performance or do you do you find that you are very rigid to what you're playing it's funny you know somebody else asked me that a punter asked me that quite recently a couple of days ago and I mean my, my honest answer to you is um it, it, it largely depends on how whether or not I've made a mistake okay. <laughs> I mean, so basically with, with my uh, I mean there's there's an ideal performance situation if I was performing for, for a you know festival crowd of people that I didn't know I would like to give the best account of myself which would mean that if possible I would play the pieces in the way I play them 90% of the time yeah you know which is which is not actually that much like the record but pretty pretty you know they're, they're pretty similar time after time however it, it depends how I'm feeling um, when I'm playing pieces which are not stuck to a click track. I mean, the audience obviously would never hear my click, but I have my click. Right. When I'm free of the click, it depends. There's a, there's, I play a piece called Between Two Ways at the front end of, of a big number called Addison. So Between Two Ways could be anything from extremely intro, introspective to, to uh, very to like, like an invocation. You know, it could be one way or the other depending on how I'm feeling. In terms of improvising, I mean, there have been occasions, I was supporting Highland actually in Glasgow, and I'm playing a piece which I have been playing for a long time, I know it very well, White Salt Stone. There's no reason on this earth I kicked out a loop early, and I can't put it back in again. <laughs> the timing is running in such a way that you can't, it, can't just press play again. Yeah. So I had to basically, on the fly, rewrite the end of the piece in a ritualistic and bombastic fashion to be appropriate for the concert I was performing, for the audience I was performing for, and for the ritual that I was setting the scene for. Yeah. You know, I had this, oh, Lord, honestly. I mean, it was a bit stressful, but, you know, another time I, I set out to play, uh, to begin my set, and I began 
with a piece called Loris, which uses Colenia, which is when you hit the hit the strings with the wood of the bow. Yeah. Hit hit the very first string, the A string snapped. So I went back oh, stage. No. <laughs> yeah, no. Went back stage, changed it in a rush, snapped the spare one, and I had to come out to the audience and they all cheered and I said, You may want to maybe reserve your enthusiasm because now I have to play you a completely improvised set using only three strings. So, you know, I did it. Um, people actually said, oh, I do hope somebody has recorded that. And I think the reason that worked is because there was that moment, you know, you've probably had them where you know that you have to play a concert. It, it, that's the end of that. You've yeah. got to play a concert. And that is what is going to happen. And somehow you were going to play a concert and you don't have the right number of strings, you, you can't play the pieces that you wanted to play, you, could, you know, all this, you can't play anything that you know, but you've still got to play a concert, so you're just going to get on stage, get your tights on and get on stage, as my friend says, you know, so, <laughs> I mean, improvisation is, I think, a critical skill to be able to draw upon, um, yeah. because there are other times where the stage monitoring is set up in such a way, the stage is quite large, subs are very big, so sometimes I can't hear, even with my in-ear monitoring, I, I can't hear properly and accurately through the loops. So I maybe in those situations I would decide to leave the intricacies out, but we're going to go for something completely different in this performance. So uh, it's very much, it's thinking, it's literally thinking on the fly as well and adjusting to each situation that you find yourself in. Mm. And, and making the best concerts uh, that you can um, before your audience, you know? Yeah. And... In terms of kind of where you're positioned at the moment, as, a, as I said, you're kind of an established name within that sort of post-rock, post-metal scene, world, whatever you want to call it sort of thing. Um, and I don't know, like, from an outsider, like, you've been afforded incredible opportunities in terms of, like, collaborations, tours, things like that. And I don't know, like just talking to you at the moment it seems like there's so much that you've done so do you kind of set yourself goals or is it just that these opportunities just seem to kind of fall on fall in your lap at the perfect time well i mean as, as i said to you before i've got an agent Hayden, who's, who's completely brilliant yeah um i do have a, a great team around me as well of, of people who look after me um i think that i mean my when i when I first started writing my own music, um, my my goal, I, I said to myself, if if one person is moved once by something that I write, and if they find a space, if one person in, in a piece that I've written, then I've done my job. Yeah. You know? And that was that that's that's always been my philosophy, and and it still is. And now. It's you know it's a blessing to say okay well, well I uh, several people it seems find a space in which they can breathe inside the music I write and this is great privilege so I'm going to carry on because uh, you know I, I'm writing these pieces of music and I, I want to keep performing them um, I'm very lucky with the opportunities yes very lucky with the opportunities I've been afforded um, but I've been doing this. I mean, I've been playing the show since the dawn of time. You know, I've been doing <laughs> yeah. this for a long time. It's kind of I trust it because I, I trust I trust what's happening because it's very organic. And you know, whilst I've now it's slightly more in the public eye. And yes, I've had these fantastic tours and opportunities and collaborations. I've been doing this for a long time. Yeah. You know, and so it's like one one of the artists. Uh, 
but I suppose he once said to me, you know, and he said, you're, you're great, and it's very nice thing to say, you know, but you, you, you play this cello so well, and you know, we see your name everywhere now, and you, you've come from nowhere, and I was like, yeah, 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 I've been doing this for at least 20 years, but don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's you, you, some, you know, it, I never, what, what I do is not going to put me on uh, whatever the equivalent of top of the pops is now, you know, yeah, I mean, it's yeah. not... I, do you know what I mean? So, so it's uh, the opportunities I get. Uh, I'm very, very, very thankful for. Yeah. Um, and I'm thankful that people seem to stay on board once they've got on board. Um, so let's hope that that continues. You know? <laughs> yeah. And you mentioned obviously a big part of your life now is obviously family and and things like that. So, <laughs> how would you say that motherhood has kind of changed your approach to music, or has it at all? And because I, I remember reading somewhere that, that your daughter's kind of obviously have started play, playing around with music as well. So have you yeah. been able to pass the torch in that aspect? <laughs> yeah, but I mean, she's very little. She's seven. Um, so she, she, I, 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 I'm not a pushy mother in yeah. any respect at all. However, it is of vital importance, I think, that uh, everybody learns to read music, so uh, that I'm afraid I am pushy about that, so, <laughs> yeah, so, so, and I said to her, you know, don't, I don't ask you for anything, we have plenty of time playing PlayStation and tablets, and we do swimming, we do nice things she loves to do as well, and I said, for me, please, when you just learn to read music, it's just, just trust me, this is something that's going to be really useful, learn now, you don't have to, you, you, you do what you want for career, you, whatever you want, it doesn't matter, you know. But just learn to read music. Yeah. It's a skill that just, aside from anything else, it just gets both sides of the brain working. You know, you might as well. You know, if you've got two parents that are musicians, you may as well learn to read music. Yeah. But, I mean, she's, she's yeah, she enjoys it. She's got, I would say, she's got a good ear. Um, but she was uh, jolly close, especially in the late months of my pregnancy. I mean, obviously, she had a cello resting on her for for. for few hours a day at least, you know, <laughs> so it'd be hard for her not to be into it. Um I, I think yeah, I think she she's she's it's it's easy in some ways because I never stopped doing what I do. So yeah. when she was tiny, like pretty much from when she was born, I just put her little cradle thing in my music room and played my cello and that was it because I have to play and she needs to sleep. So those yeah. two things need to therefore be combined. So that's what we did and and it worked perfectly well. Um it's, it's hard touring now because obviously she's at school and I miss her very, yeah. very much. Um, but we find a way of, of making things work, you know. And I suppose being a parent and a musician, for me personally, it just means that I have to be very organised with my time and, and I can't sort of uh, be drifting around for hours on end because sometimes the time I have will be when she's gone to bed. So, you know, 8, 8.30, I might get a couple of hours in the evening. Yeah. Especially like now during the school holidays, you know. Um, so it just means you have to be jolly organised, basically, with your time, I think. Mm. And I'm, again, making a bit of an assumption, but I'm, I'm assuming she's come and, and seen you perform. Yeah, yeah. yeah she has. She's, she likes it very much. She, she was very taken. She came to uh, Earth when I supported you. Bear thing, that was an interesting one. So that was the other side of the fence, because obviously he's, he's a pianist. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. Uh, she was very, very taken with that concert. I think probably because the sound system was immense, and she was able to sit on on the front of the house desk and watch what the guys were doing, you know, and all the rest of it. But um, she, she, she gets it. Um, she understands that I 
go on tour and play and, and when she does come to gigs I mean she seems to really enjoy it so thank heavens for that <laughs> <laughs> I mean it's uh, yeah it's, it's good fun I mean I'm glad to be able to, to show her this this side of things yeah. as well and if we kind of move on to to what you're doing sort of more imminently and, and recently recently announced that you're kind of running you're going to be running your own label sort of thing so yeah where did that kind of idea stem from is it something that's been in the pipeline for a while and kind of what do you envision it doing apart from being able to put out your own music as well well um it's yes it's been in the pipeline for a while um i because as we've talked about you know it's it's, um, a little bit of a a, not quite aligned sort of strictly to any particular genre so from a marketing point of view I'm probably uh, not a terribly attractive prospect (laughs) but so so I I wanted I thought right well I I'd like a record label but equally uh, I didn't really want to give over any of my publishing and you know I was Distribution is important, but making twenty thousand sales—that's uh, you know—it's not nineteen eighty-three anymore, basically. Yeah. So record record deals really, um, you know, if you're talking in the in the tens of thousands of figures that they think they're going to sell, then it's worth looking at. But otherwise, it's actually better if I do it myself. Um, and so I set up Addiston Records purely for that, um, and it it costs quite a lot to make a record. Yeah. But I think that. Um, I'm I'm fairly fairly frugal, you know, and I, I keep an eye on things. But I would like Adderstone to be a platform to be able to release other artists' work in, in the fullness of time. And these would be artists that I love. I mean, I could I could think of ten of them off the top of my head that yeah. I'd love to sign. You know. But I would only do it uh, if if I had enough money to to make them the most beautiful packaged album with the finest work that they wanted to put on it. Um, and I'm not interested in, well, obviously I don't want to lose money, but I'm not interested in making money off other people. But I am interested in having something which people regard as, as, as a platform for, they can trust and it's very high quality releases and it'd be very interesting and musically uh, will we'll have plenty of things to, to be thought about in there, you know? So that's what I'd like for the future. Mm. Um, but it's bit by bit because, as I say, I mean, I had enough money to make my first record, yeah. uh, vinyl, double vinyl, um, and I would like to release Five Incantations, which was my previous album to Exolve, and that's been sold out for, for uh, a couple of years now. I'd like to make that on vinyl, then after that there might be enough in the bank to perhaps talk to one of my colleagues and see if they'd like to put something out on Addison, and then we can just start to build our little family up, so yeah. <laughs> we'll see. Perfect. Um, Joe, before I let you go, because I've taken up way too much of your, your evening, um, how I like to end things is to to ask my guests what their favourite song is, but with a bit of a twist. So, what's oh God. <laughs> uh, so what's your favourite song that you like to perform live, and why? My favourite. Oh, okay. My favourite song of mine. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sorry, uh, I should have specified that, shouldn't I? <laughs> no, sorry. Because we were going to head off into Jimmy Barnes otherwise. So. <laughs> <laughs> right. My favourite song. Oh, well. Actually, it, it, it changes, but currently it's Mandrel Cantus yeah. from Exolve. And the reason I like performing this one is because uh, it's extremely ambiguous at the front end. Um, but I love playing it. It's very, very exciting to play. It's also probably one of my most accessible ones at the moment. It's very, very satisfying chord sequence. But the best bit is during the dropout section, 
there's kind of like an 808 kick that I bring in that I made, sound that I made, and without fail, generally actually, without fail, people start clapping along or, or kind of grooving to it, and then when the big riffs come back in, it's just like this explosion, and I think people really enjoy this piece, and it makes, it fills me with such uh, energy when I play it, I love to play it, and I, I love the, 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 the communion that all of us have me and the audience and the stage this three-way thing you know yeah. we're, we're all grooving it by the end and it's just great fun so perfect <laughs> brilliant joe thank you very much for your time really appreciate it um looking forward to seeing you out with uh emma ruth rundle in a in a, oh, in a, in a month or so yeah so. fantastic well it's been really nice to chat with you thank you no worries but yeah oh. uh, see you then okay brilliant look forward to it speak to you soon cheers take care bye bye So there we have it folks, a massive thank you again to Joe for taking some time out of her day to have a little chat with me. Um, forgot to mention at the top but this was actually recorded before uh, Joe's tour with Emma Ruth Rundle uh, which is now finished so unfortunately missed her on that, this occasion but she'll be out on the road again very soon. Um, so if you do want to find out when Joe is on the road again or anything else about her, her record label, her music, whatever you want it can be found on all her various social media platforms and her uh, official website which will all be linked in the description of this episode um that is it for another week i'm going to keep this nice and short so thank you very much for stopping by the just an insight podcast again and i'll see you soon